A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T. Well, the fairest of good mornings to you. Welcome to episode 50-something of PQRST, parodies, quips, rants, and storytelling. I'm out in the backyard, I am, watching my son, who's currently watching me with a bottle in his mouth, and hopefully he will decide to go play in the backyard, which is the whole point of us being out here and you dealing with the traffic noise, which, however, should not be as bad as it would have been previously and may have been previously because, thanks to uh, the last week or so, I now know how to use the free Audacity software to clean up audio files, and I have, well, I haven't yet because I'm still recording this, but by the time you listen to this, I will have cleaned up the Audacity file, and so the uh, overall noise, uh, background noise, should be less than basically any previous podcast, even ones that I recorded where there was no traffic 20 yards away. So, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, I just yesterday finished uh, my second LibriVox recording. Uh, just a short recap in case you didn't uh, hear the previous podcast on that or don't remember. LibriVox.org. Write that name down if you have well, if you have enough interest to listen to me talk. You probably are at least slightly interested in voice recordings, like, say, books on tape that are available. And if you're anything like me, you especially like things that are free. LibriVox.org currently has 20,000, uh, maybe 22,000, 20-something thousand recordings that are in the public domain, therefore available for whoever to do whatever with. And they've been recorded by volunteers like myself and are available for free. So my first experience was finding Peter and Wendy and all the Oz books and everything basically Mark Twain ever put to paper. Um, a bunch of the Sherlock Holmes stories are on there, and I have an idea about that, which you will hear more about later. But basically, there are thousands of things available. They are all available for free. All that costs you is the time to download them. There, you can donate if you want, but there's, there's no expectation. There's no money changing hands at all. It's like a library, except you don't have to give them back. Um, the only caveat being that it's stuff in the public domain, so the uh, most recent work on there is probably 1923 or so. But take a look at the, uh, the catalog. There have been fantastic things that have been uh, written in, you know, uh, since 1923 in a in hundred years or more. Anyway, I recorded Seeing Darkly, which is available on the site right now. Uh, it was a a religious text written by a Reverend Sparhawk Jones in 1909, and just yesterday finished reaching, reaching reading Twelve Years in the Saddle by Texas Ranger John Sullivan, uh, written in the late 1800s, and it was fascinating read. Um, a lot of, as I'm reading, a lot of moments from Tombstone popped into my head, especially since uh, Cherokee Bill was mentioned by name. But it's also a real story instead of a Hollywoodized make the best of it story, so there were moments where he's like, yeah, so we took uh, these guys and we caught them and we took them to jail and they went on trial and they were acquitted. The lawyers lied and they got off free. There were, there were far too many stories that ended with, and they were acquitted, but that's real life and that happens. But fascinating stuff, uh, guns and robbers and stagecoaches and I don't know what all, even, even him getting shot. And I won't ruin it for you, I'll let you go find it, but... You would search 12 Years in the Saddle at LibriVox.org, and you get to hear me for a couple of hours doing my best Texas Ranger 
affectation, which I asked before I started doing this if it was okay. And they're like, you know, we don't encourage people to do affectations, but yours is all right, so go on. And uh, a lot of fun, and uh, it's a fun recording. So anyway, that's the whole audacity thing, and the reason why this recording has noise cleaning on it, and all future ones will. And I might even, being that guy, go retroactively clean up the previous podcasts, but then I'd have to reload them, so maybe not. Anyway, um, I, I started off this podcast singing a little bit from uh, The Little Mermaid. Why would I do that? Well, last night was improv rehearsal, and as you may have guessed, I got to be at one point The Little Mermaid herself. Uh, I also got to be a junior high girl. I got to be a fisherman who, for reasons that made sense at the time, stuck his head in the bait bucket. And uh, I got to be a robot, got to be all sorts of things. And, oh, thank God for improv in general and the fact that I passed the audition and got onto the third kind improv group because I am loving it so much. Really, really, it's a fantastic, fantastic group. Um, cannot say enough good things about them. They, it would be perfectly reasonable, in my opinion, if the members of the group that have been part of the group for years were not standoffish maybe, but just kind of cool towards us newbies, kind of like, hey, glad you're here, you're not really part of things yet, but I have not experienced that for a moment. The people that are that have been there for years, and us people that have been, have had like three rehearsals, I don't know that you could tell the difference if you were to walk into last night's room and see us doing a warm-up game all together. I don't think you would have been able to tell, because we have just been welcomed and included like we've been there since the beginning, and I love that. Oh, dear Lord, I love that. And so, this is a great group. I'm very, very happy to be part of the team. Um, don't have a rant this week, uh, although you'd think that I would. Well, yeah, I'm going to tell a story that would have been a rant. And a neighbor of mine showed some some Christian love. And it's, it's one of those, I want to be more like this person. So... As may have happened to many of you listening, on the morning of July 4th, and when I say morning, I mean 12, 23 in the morning, uh, some patriotic 20-something neighbors of Tiffany's and mine decided to uh, celebrate their freedom and set off some fireworks. Some illegal fireworks, because in Colorado, is my understanding, anything that leaves the ground and explodes that is not being done by a professional is illegal. These were definitely leaving the ground and exploding, and my... Fortunately, Isaac sleeps through everything, and he did not wake up, even though Franklin the dog was barking his head off for the better part of an hour. Got my wife up, got me up, um, and enough that it happened once, but then when it happened again at about 12.30, I was like, I'm ha I've had enough, I'm going outside. And I got to talk to the patriotic neighbors. There were about 10 of them, because the two that live nearby were having a a sleepover. Apparently their mother was out of town and they had some friends over and there was some marijuana smoking and maybe some drinking. They're, they're 21, you know, they're allowed. And uh, the illegal fireworks. And in confronting my patriotic neighbors, I got to be, I was told that it's fine because it's not that illegal. It's fine because they didn't actually start a fire. It's fine because nobody has to work tomorrow. Um, I was watching a little boy the next day. My wife was going to work. Um, within earshot of their explosions, we have a widow who lost her husband within the last few months. We have a uh, neighbor with diabetes who has trouble smoking, trouble smoking, trouble sleeping, especially when she's smelling marijuana smoke. We have uh, all sorts of people who do have to work the next day. Apparently, none of the patriots did. But anyway, I heard that it was fine. Literally, one of them said, "This is fine. We can do this because we're white, and so it's okay." So I was not at all happy with my patriotic neighbors. I really wasn't. And 
the worst part is someone who does that, they know they're done. They can go back to sleep because it's over. I don't know that they're done, and I go up and I try to sleep, but a part of me is still waiting for the next explosion. And so at 1 o'clock, I get up and I recorded uh, 12 Years in the Saddle, a few, a few chapters from that because I wasn't sleeping. Um, at 2 o'clock, still hadn't managed to get back to sleep, so I got up and I started walking around our cul-de-sac. And I was still mad and initially had thoughts of, hey, why don't I wait till 4 a.m. and then go bang on the door where these people live? Or I could take a key and make marks on the doors of all the cars of these children right now. And, or I could slash some tires. And I, I would not actually do that. I don't, I don't do things like that. But even thinking about it wasn't that helpful. As I started to calm down, I started thinking, well, I could write a note to each and put it on their windshield, telling them how much Jesus loves them. But while that would have been true, Jesus does love them, he also loves you. Um, I would not have been leaving those notes because I wanted to bless them. I would have been leaving those notes because I wanted them to feel bad. And that is not a Christ-like thing to do. Jesus did not do that to people. So I walked around the cul-de-sac and around and around and around and around and around from two to about three and prayed about it. And I was like, all right, God, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to go to bed. But I'm, I at least didn't do anything, you know. Well, when I got up the next day, um, I've been going for walks with my dog and my son before it gets too hot out. And Isaac and I were on a walk, and we ran into one of our neighbors, one of the ones who was not involved in the explosions, except for the fact that the explosions kept uh, him up all night, too. And he was just leaving, as far as I could tell, the house where the uh, the Patriots lived, where the sleepover had been. And I was like, hey, what's going on? And we talked about the explosions. He said, yeah, I, he's also a Christian. He's like, I was praying for some way that I could bless them, some way that I could show kindness to repay for the evil, which is very scriptural. Jesus said, do exactly that, repay evil with kindness. And it was the sort of thing I had tried to figure out something to do and hadn't come up with anything. And he said, yeah, so when I woke up, the Holy Spirit was like, buy him breakfast. And so I just uh, drove over to King Supers and bought some donuts and drove back. And by now, this was 8.30, 8.45 in the morning on July 4th. And he said, nobody answered the door, but I left him on the, uh, on the hood of the car in the driveway. And I was really humbled by that. When I was sitting there praying about, you know, leaving sanctimonious notes at best and slashing tires at worst... This neighbor was like, what can I do that's just kind? And he said, I, you know, I, I wanted to do something not to make them feel bad, not to say, hey, you guys kept all this neighborhood up all night, but we love you, and here's Donut. Just, I just wanted to do something. It's like, hey, happy Fourth of July. Have breakfast on us. And uh, this world needs more of that. This is why I bring this up, um, because for me to repeat that story, hopefully it'll hammer it more into my head, and maybe it'll be a blessing to you. Both this neighbor who did such a good job being kind, and myself, we would have been justified in filing an HOA complaint, calling the police, you know, knocking on the door at 8 o'clock in the morning and demanding satisfaction. A lot of things were within our rights to get, you know, make it right, get even sort of thing. And there's there's too many people in this world, myself included, whose first thought would be, well, I'm going to slash some tires, you know, because that was my first thought. I didn't do it. I didn't even, you know, start thinking about where I keep knives. I But that was... My first thought was retribution, revenge. I want to make them pay. And that's not how Jesus operated. And that's not how he asked us to operate. He was very clear that you do good to those who love people, especially when they're not loving you, especially when they're not loving you. So uh, I wanted to uh, tell on my neighbor, 
and uh, and uh, lift him up because that was that was the way to do it. He was kind, even though I'm pretty sure he was up all night and most of the neighborhood. And, and you know, we wanted satisfaction. I don't know if we'll get it, but that's okay. Jesus didn't demand satisfaction. He he loved people. And um, I heard from this neighbor that the lady that owned the place, whose daughters were, you know, the ones holding the sleepover, and anyway, the, the house of the Patriots, uh, that neighbor came to, to his house to thank him. Apparently he wrote his, his address and number on the, on the donuts box, along with the happy 4th of July, just to say thank you. And so he and that neighbor, where they could have had, you know, there could have been a shouting match, there could have been a, well, you better not, if I see you coming down the street, I'm not going to break, that sort of crap. Instead... There's a good connection now. I don't think they had met before from the way he was talking about it. And so now they have, and the families are connected, and maybe they can bless each other. And so the neighborhood is stronger after that incident where it could have been weaker. And so just this world needs more of that, and I need more of that in my own life. I need, I'm so quick to judge. If I see someone in the handicap spot and there's no handicap sticker, I immediately assume the worst. If there's a, you know, a dog that's not on a leash, boy, you better get that dog. I just, I'm so quick to judge people. And I want to be quicker to reach out and love to people and leave the judgment to someone more qualified than me. So, yeah, that's the story I wanted to tell. Well, that's one of the stories I wanted to tell. The other one, of course, you've been waiting for more of the baseball book. We have The Kid, chapters 10 and 11. Jason Stiller wants to be back on that baseball team, and I want to see if he makes it. All right, so... We will go and check that out. Yay! My son's very excited. Back in the flesh. Chapter 10. Call him. Bud put his cards on the table, and Lefty, Pickens, and Dutch groaned in unison. How does he keep doing that? You're sitting closest, Lefty. Is he cheating? Good-natured laughter floated around three sides of the card table but the star pitcher didn't join in any more than he had all game. His friends had noticed how quiet the man had been all weekend, after his formal apology to the Braves and to Jason Stiller had led him back into the baseball games. Bud Triplehorn, they all would have agreed, was not a man who expressed emotion well. Or at all, really. He had been known on more than a few occasions to withdraw into a moody silence. But his closest friend Dutch Catan, in particular, had noticed that this... Particular moody silence had a different feel to it than usual. Not as if Bud was mad, despite D.D.'s rebuke and having to apologize like a schoolchild to the kid. More like his friend was thinking, mulling over something in his mind. As another round of poker began, he thought he might like to take at least a little stab at it. And more than that, maybe bring up for discussion something that had bothered him a little about the past weekend's triad against the Illinois Reds. The cards he got were terrible and the four he replaced worse than that, so he folded. While Lefty and Pickens began raising the stakes, Dutch took a sip of his beer and then tapped his finger absently against the glass, something he unknowingly had a habit of doing when he was thinking. When there was a lull in the wagering, he dove in. You know, guys, there's something that's been bothering me about the past weekend. The fact that we lost? No, I mean, yes, but no. Shut up, Pickens. He took another sip to get his wits back and continued. What I'm saying is that if I remember correct, we were favored to win by a few points, weren't we? Lefty finally collected the small pot, and was nice enough to keep Catan's struggling conversation skills afloat while he collected his winnings. Yeah, by about a dozen points overall, three or four runs each game. 
which we didn't do. Pickens agreed. Not by a long shot. Doesn't something seem a little hanky about that? It's not like we were come from behind favorites either. The Braves have really been shining this season. Dutch was no fool. He knew what was going on. He just didn't want to say it. We all thought this weekend, well, maybe it wasn't supposed to be a walk in the park, but it was supposed to swing our way, wasn't it? He let the statement hang, hoping somebody else would finish the thought that Lefty or Pickens or better yet Bud would speak up and lay it on the table. Dutch, if you don't know why, exactly, why we lost those three games, you've been playing blind for the past three months. It was Lefty, not Bud, who answered, and so Dutch didn't get all of his wishes, but at least he wasn't the only one holding the conversation up. Pretend I have. Why? Lefty tapped his cards on the table before looking at them again. What, you think they've changed magically? Before his teammate could defend himself, Dutch continued, I'm just wondering if what I think is the cause of our sudden slump agrees with everyone else's opinion. Apparently disgusted with his hand, Lefty tossed all five cards onto the table and turned to look at Dutch directly. If it'll make you feel better, I'll do the hot pot, lay out what you've been dancing around for the past ten minutes. The reason why the Boston Braves lost the last three games has to do with one young rookie who doesn't even have a mitt, a boy by the name of Jason Stiller. You happy now? It can't be that simple, boys. It can and it is, Pickens. Lefty switched his cigar to the other side of his mouth, thoughtfully not blowing the smoke up at the ceiling and not at any of his pals. It can and it is, Pickens. Lefty switched his cigar to the other side of his mouth, thoughtfully blowing the smoke up at the ceiling, and not at any of his pals. You would have, will you not? After the little fight, when a quick sidelong glance at Bud produced no comment, he went on, and the kid being thrown out of the game, we started playing like robots. Granted, losing Bud didn't help anything. Dutch felt more comfortable now that he knew he wasn't alone. But we still lost games two and three, even with our star pitcher rolling them down the alley. I don't know when we got to this place or how it works exactly, but the Braves are totally dependent on that little kid. Pickens looked thoughtful. Dutch wondered how often that happened. His comment indicated more of that same thinking, which must really have strained him. I've heard it from Deej as well as Bud. It's the pitcher that wins a ball game, not any star hitter. They, they even say how many games a pitcher's won in a season. Ten, twenty, you know. How can it be Jason's fault that we lost? I don't know, Pickens. I can't imagine some young rookie becoming the heart of a team. And then he said it, even though it pained him to say it again. But we sure as shooting lost three games that we were supposed to win. Dutch wanted somebody, anybody, to have a rebuttal for that. But unfortunately, he was all too correct, at least as far as his fellow card players figured things. And through it all, the opinion he was most interested in he did not get. As Bud Triplehorn sat and played cards at the same small table, and yet was somehow a thousand miles away. Gertrude Muldowney had never had the answer to her prayers come so quickly or conveniently as that Monday afternoon, when Raven Germain knocked shyly, hesitantly, on the door of the house she had run and played and lived in at times not so long ago, and a lifetime before. When she opened the door to the pleasant surprise of her goddaughter, Gertrude's mind zipped through a jumble of images. A roly-poly baby with her mother's eyes. The gap-toothed girl, her husband's little raccoon, caught with a grubby hand in her cookie jar. The young lady in a pretty white spring dress at Raven's thirteen-year-old birthday dinner. And then seven, eight years of almost no contact, just flashes, sorrowful eyes, and blank smiles. 
and finally two recent images that sparred for approval in Gertrude's mind. The excited, happy young lady thinking about the handsome gentleman in her life, and the scared woman contemplating a future she didn't know if she could survive. The smile she gave her friend was the brightest she had. Hello, Raven. Raven couldn't match her smile, but the girl's countenance lifted just a bit. Gertie? The scared woman. That was the one Gertrude found at her door. The naked anxiety that the young lady's godmother had not been able to talk to all the way home, just a week or so before, that had been hidden very deep inside, yet was still available for one who knew where to look. Won't you come inside? I would like that, I think. Gertie, he's not here, is he? The older woman knew that the younger was not speaking of Dennis G. No, Raven, he's not here. She thought somehow that this news might be a good thing. It was. Well, okay, if it's not any trouble. Raven sounded more shy than the situation deserved, and very desperate, too, under that. Oh, for heaven's sake, child, ushering the girl inside before she could get away. The day you become trouble to have around is the day I change my name to Fred, you hear me? Raven didn't respond, but there was a slight, and better yet, honest smile on her face. Gertrude Muldowney felt some of the anxiety in her heart slip away. The real raccoon, the beautiful little girl, she was in there. Somewhere. The two women found their way inside just before a gentle rain began to fall over the greater Boston area. Raven Germain stood in the dining room of the Muldowney home having similar thoughts to Gertrude's without realizing it. Remembering Christmas celebrations, summer picnics, school homework and projects. That last thought, school project, suddenly tripped one of the triggers that were set like booby traps around the worst memories, around all of the thoughts and feelings and emotions that were connected with that night. Unfortunately, there were many booby traps, many triggers that could set it off. Hearing her father's angry voice, driving by an unexpected drugstore, even a horrible discovery one afternoon, the smell of carpenter's glue, the glue she had been using to try and frantically finish that stupid, worthless science project. And now this. It was too late to find something else to focus on, too late to put up her guard. As she stood in the dining room and the trap sprang up around her, Raven had no defense against remembering it all again. Gertrude found her sitting in one of the chairs, sobbing like the world had crumbled to pieces around her. She grabbed the closest chair and then reached out to the young lady, who clung to her and wept. Over and over, Raven said, Mommy into Gertrude's shoulder without even realizing it. It was a long time before the flood came to an end. Even after it had, even after the wellspring of emotions had run dry, Raven knew she would be okay. Well, not well, but okay. If she leaned back, stepped back, moved back from this place and these feelings. Yet the young lady was so tired of running, so tired of fighting against the things that mattered most to her that she stayed where she was allowing her godmother to hold her as long as could be. Now that her goddaughter had actually revealed that the little girl still existed inside, Gertrude Muldowney was in no hurry to let go. The older woman had not known her lord for very long, but in a short time she had read much about him, learned much about his ways and his will, and she knew that if all other avenues were closed off, she could still pray. She could always, and forever, still pray. 
The prayers she had been sending up for Raven ever since the first day of her new life had apparently had effect. The girl was in her house, in her embrace, crying her eyes out in a way that Gertie knew, knew was more healing than trial. Whatever she was facing, only the Lord knew, but Gertrude was certain that things went much deeper than Jason Stiller. Much deeper. Prayers worked. They had to. And Gertrude Muldowney loved Raven Germain much too much for there to be any stopping now. So she prayed as the girl cried, and prayed as she quieted, and prayed while she wondered what would come next. Gertrude couldn't decide anything for Raven. Whatever would come of the day had to be the girl's choice. But could she face her past? Could she possibly start walking in her own shoes once again? She prayed while she wondered what would come next. Unlike the embrace of her man, there was no fear or worry in that place. Like a little child, Raven knew that she could stay as long as she wished, as long as was necessary. And the girl, too, wondered what came next. Gertie, I'm tired. Of what, dear? The quiet reply flowed over her hair from above. Of running away? After a pause, the soft southern voice spoke again. What is it you've been running from? Raven didn't know. No, wait. She didn't want to know. She didn't want to face it. Didn't want to acknowledge what the real problem was. Her mother. That night. Somehow her heart let it through, allowed a bubble of painful truth to escape and find the surface. I miss her so much. Gertie's breath caught for a second. When she spoke, Raven's voice sounded almost like the twelve-year-old girl again like the past eight years had faded away, right back to where everything had gone wrong. She wondered if that was good or not, and prayed for wisdom. I miss her too, Raven. A thought came to her, and a little push seemed worth the chance. What happened that night wasn't your fault. Raven didn't answer that. Not right away. She had never believed it. No matter who had told her or how often, she had never believed that it might be the truth. And yet she didn't know why. Part of her knew that in the end, that awful evening when her mother was murdered was just life. Just one of those things. Something very unfortunate and wrong, but not something she could have stopped. It was the man with the gun. It was his fault, not hers. But part of her refused to believe this. Part of her needed it to be her fault so she could be both angry and guilty for that night forever. She ran that over again in her mind, and when she knew how to put it into words, Raven said as much to her godmother. Gertrude thought about it and responded, Why would you choose to be angry and guilty forever? What is it? Why don't you want to let yourself fail? She knew that Raven had this answer inside, and somehow was sure that the girl herself knew the answer well enough. Would she admit it? Would she let it go? Gertrude had a feeling inside her as if something dark and ugly that had been wrapped around her goddaughter's life for eight years, like that thing that had ensnared her heart, was loosened, was fighting to get its grip back, and in the next few minutes either Raven would let it win again like she had before, would go back inside her shell, let false, guilty pain be substituted for the real loss. Or maybe... She didn't know what to think, or what to pray, or have any course of action besides pleading for the Lord Jesus to help the child, 
Over and over she prayed in the eons it seemed to take before Raven's answer. It seemed impossible that there could be more tears after the flood she had so recently been emptied of, but Raven knew they were coming. Knew that facing the truth would hurt a lot, all the more so for pushing it away time and time again. But for whatever reason, for perhaps nothing else in the end, but because Jason Stiller had gotten so far in, had worked so hard at loving her. Raven knew there was more of that in life, knew it could be found somewhere. And as much as the truth would hurt, at least it was the truth. As if the gentle storm drumming the roof had found its way inside, Raven felt a pair of hot, cleansing showers slide down her face, spotting the simple flannel shirt and overalls she was wearing. She wondered in that moment which was more real, the pretty, dressed-up princess who knew what to say and how to act and always did what was proper, or the grubby little girl with skin knees and bright eyes who could be felt smiling even from the inside. She didn't know which was real, which was Raven Germain. But she did know, whoever Raven Germain was, that woman and no other was going to face the truth once and for all. Ignoring the spots, ignoring the pain, Raven fixed her striking green eyes on the far wall, reaching as deeply inside herself as she ever had. What exactly had her godmother asked? What was it that she could not allow herself to feel? What was it that anger and shame were used to shortcut and hide away? She knew the answer. It took several tries, but her voice worked in the end, if only as a whisper. Anger and shame and just numbness have always been my escape, my way of avoiding what I knew someday, sooner or later I would have to face. As long as I could be angry with myself, or with my father, as long as I could feel guilty and shameful, like it was my fault she was killed. And now it got to the place that really hurt, but she would not, she would not stop now. I wouldn't have to face the fact, the fact that my mother, that she's dead, okay? She screamed not at her godmother, or at herself, but at the world, at whoever had taken her mother away and let her grow up alone. No longer spiteful, Raven let the good anger come and go, and even when that was followed by a fresh, redoubled wave of pain, she refused to quit, refused to let go. She's dead, and I never got to know her really, and I just... I miss her so. And the twelve-year-old girl clung to the safety of her godmother's arms and cried until her heart and her soul were empty. Gertrude made some tea while she thanked the Lord for his mercy and grace, and prayed for the next step, again not sure if it was the right time to approach the subject. Raven had been through a great deal within the hour, and yet her godmother knew from experience that instead of being sick or anxious, the young lady was probably experiencing the most delicious peace she had felt in a very long time. Accepting her tea, Raven was glad that her godmother knew how to be quiet. She wanted somehow to express what she was feeling, and at the same time sensed that perhaps the older woman knew from a first-hand basis. It was strange, something the world couldn't really explain or reason with, which was probably why it wasn't a normal solution, but in the minutes since she had let go, since she had taken down all of her walls and just let the truth come barging in, 
since Raven had come to the point in her life where she would rather face the worst pain imaginable rather than another round of deception, lying to the world and to herself. Well, the pain had indeed been tremendous, and yet on the other side... There was an other side. That in itself was amazing, and worth contemplating, for the girl had long believed that if she really faced her mother's death, the pain might kill her. It couldn't possibly be something she could survive. Yet there was an other side, and once past the slew of emotion there was peace. Well, not a little, either, but a river, a flood of peace throughout her being as Raven Germain sat at her godmother's dining room table remembering her mother. Somehow the memories didn't hurt so much. Nothing like before. Despite all that had come before, yet another pair of tears sprang to her eyes when they met Gertrude's. I'm really going to be okay, aren't I? Gertrude would have been lying to say that her own eyes weren't rather misty at that point. Yes, dear, you will indeed. Should she mention the rest? Should she try and introduce her goddaughter, the beautiful flower, to the master gardener? Raven, do you know where this peace you're feeling comes from? The young lady thought about it. I'm not sure. Do you? Gertie smiled. Yes, yeah, sugar. Would you like to know? Too much? Too soon? The sounds of the summer rain rang through the house and the resulting quiet as the young lady looked at the old woman, silently considering her answer. Not all of God's creatures were smart enough to get out of the rain that afternoon. Even as Raven Germain was knocking on the door of Gertrude Muldowney, Gertie's husband D.G. was leading two of his ball players in a small parade, heading in the direction of Deej's favorite fishing pond. The boat was right where he had left it, and nicely soaked as well, to say nothing of the three fishermen who clambered in and worked out seating arrangements. D.G. thought to himself that it might make a lot more sense to have the strapping young man working at least one of the oars, but somehow he and Bud Triplehorn ended up moving the boat through the water while Jason sat up at the bow, looking out over the rain-swollen lake. The kid had said nothing to him, or apparently anyone, since he had been thrown out of the stadium, except for one quiet request to be allowed to play again, which the manager of the Braves had said that he would consider. He had considered it for several days, and come to the decision that it would take more than just the request for Jason Stiller to return to the Braves. Yet at the same time, D.G. knew there was more to the situation than just Jason being difficult. The kid had been hurt. He wasn't sure what to do next. And seeing as how it was the team manager's job to keep everybody working together... The rain falls on the just and the unjust, D.G. commented dryly, his wit being the only dry thing in the boat by then. Which are we, Deej? Darn if I know, bud. Darn if I know. D.G. had been hoping to get some sort of rise out of Stiller with his joke, but the kid didn't oblige him. At least this ought to bring the fish to the surface, huh? Heh, <laughs> best time to go fishing. Ain't you even gonna bait a line, kid? Three separate fishing poles had come along for the ride, but only two looked like they were going to be of any use. Finally, Jason Stiller turned his head away from his important wave contemplation. I don't really like fishing. If I never heard of any, D.G. cut Bud off before whatever insult the pitcher had planned drove his missing player further away from the team. I guess you don't have to if you don't want to, kid, but isn't that what we came out for? Somehow I doubt it. 
and again the young man turned away to look out over the lake. The manager of the Braves decided it was time to see if he couldn't be a little more direct, maybe chip it away at the kid's armored shell, find his friend, if that man was still inside anywhere. You just don't care for fishing, or you won't give it a go because there's a chance he can't be the best fisherman in the boat, or in Boston. Even through the rain, D.G. knew he saw the tips of Jason's ears go a little pink with embarrassment, though his friend didn't turn around. What's that supposed to mean? I'm not blind, kid. Come to think of it, maybe I almost am. Took me a good three months to catch on. But it should have been obvious really early, and now that I think about it, I can't believe I missed it. D.G. reeled in his line and sent it out again before continuing. For whatever reason, you have to be the best at absolutely everything. Have you noticed that? Beside him, Bud grunted. A sound that made D.G. think a little mystery had just been uncovered. This time, no reply whatsoever came from the bow. D.G. was not deterred. I can understand your desire to be the best hitter, even the best player on the Braves. That's even expected. But if the team runs laps, you've got to run the fastest. When we have a candy circle, you've got to store the most sweets. I've watched you play cards, checkers, backgammon, rummy. And if you can't win, if you can't prove to everybody that you're the best, you either rush off in an angry huff or you refuse to play. Come to think of it, D.G. warmed to his subject, glad to finally at least be talking to his friend once more. You've refused to play chess every time anybody ever asked you to. Tell me it's because you don't know how to play. He didn't expect an answer. And he was surprised. I can play. With a sigh, Jason swung his feet around to sit facing the two older men. I just can't win. You're saying that I'm right. It sounded petty, but D.G. couldn't help it. I'm saying that you're right. Any explanation as to why? Why do you have to be the best at everything? Again, he didn't expect an answer, and this time Jason did not disappoint. The kid just sat in the rain, looking at him, his expression not defensive or angry, just sad. D.G. had thought quite a bit about his friend, about the young man who had come to mean more than he would let himself notice over the course of the summer. Dennis G. had decided that if it might help Jason to open up about his past, his manager and landlord could start the ball rolling. I think the two of us are more alike than you know, Jason. The bow remained silent, but at least the young man didn't turn away. D.G. cast his line a time or two while he thought about how to begin. Jason hated that he couldn't tell his friend what was going on. He didn't know himself, not really. It scared him a lot deeper than he cared to admit, being found out like that. Sure, he knew himself that he had to be the best at everything, even had trouble with it sometimes. He had tried to mellow out, to calm down, to be a graceful loser, but if he couldn't be a winner, he couldn't be anything. That's just the way it was. The fact that others had tumbled onto this spooked him badly and it would take a lot more than good observation to bring out the past. It would take a lot more to get Jason Stiller talking about his father. Those years were buried in his deepest vault of hatred, padlocked and triple-sealed. They would stay buried. Jason, the kid, Stiller, sat miserably in the rain, his discomfort not coming from the cold or from the wet. I hadn't had a bit of luck getting into baseball before the war and it wasn't for a lack of trying. Without complaining or telling sob stories, I will admit to those of the Braves that are with me in this boat that I was no scholar. Not much of anything, really, growing up. D.G. worked at a wad of gum while he thought about it, 
watching his fishing sinker bobbing along between raindrops. Now, if I really be truthful about it, and since it's just you two and the fish to hear me, I will, I wasn't really that good at baseball either. You never told me that, Bud commented, watching his own line and not looking at his manager. I never told anybody but Gertie that, Bud. Feel privileged, not left out. You and Stiller are the second and third people in the world to hear that from me. And boy, I wish it wasn't true. I wish I could have pitched the ball like somebody I could name who was in this rowboat, or batted like somebody else I could name who was also along for the ride. Jason considered his petulance, refusing to help row the boat out onto the lake, and was ashamed. He also felt embarrassed for his manager, wondering what had forced the man to bare his soul in such a manner. Nobody had asked for it, had they? Who could talk about such things? And it wasn't like it didn't hurt Mr. Muldowney to say it, either. Jason knew the man well enough to hear how difficult it was. Yet he went on. So whatever I was put on this earth for, I must have missed a turn along the way. Maybe I was sick the day they explained it. Because there's no special talents, no magic tricks, nothing I can point to or rely on besides the sweat of my brow and I guess a little luck along the way. It was definitely luck that I wasn't tossed out of the braves on my ear. As it was, after the war... You've heard Gertie's story about patching me up over in Germany, haven't you, bud? I know Jason has. After the war, I went up and down the East Coast, begging all the baseball teams I could find to give me a spot. At least a chance. And only one team gave me a chance, and frankly, the Braves were a lot nicer than I deserved. And I still didn't cut it. I was a terrible fielder, a worse hitter, and that was about it for me. Maybe it should have been. D.G. felt that admission sting as it slid past his teeth. He hadn't thought about such things, not honestly, anyway, in many years. Perhaps too long. Never good for a man to forget his place in the world. Dennis reeled and cast for a minute without remembering where he was, caught up in sour memories. Ah, where was I? You were, uh, crapping out with the Braves. <sighs> Thanks, Cad. Trust the young to be nice and tactful. Well, it wasn't like Jason had started the story, was it? So by all rights, I should have been tossed right out of my ear, and then who knows where or what I'd be today. But good old Wes Gress, who both owned and managed the Braves, somehow, for a good twenty years, he decided the team could use an assistant manager. Considering all he had to do, it wasn't very surprising. The surprising part was that he let me, a know-nothing war veteran, take over some of his duties. Kept me scrambling the first few years, too. Then soon enough I was manager, and he just the owner. D.G. sighed with just the weight of all the years. And then Bob Germain stopped by in, oh, 38? Maybe 39. Bought up the Braves, and in 41, our illustrious pitcher, Bud bowed as gracefully as he could, which was nothing much, came aboard, and just a few months ago, I got to witness the birth of the greatest hitter I know I've ever seen. So, where does that get us? He got fairly blank looks from his players. Ah, Bud tried. You're asking us? The kid was no more helpful. Out in the rain, with no fish biting? D.G. was not an impatient man by nature, but he hated it when one of his stories went awry, especially for no apparent reason. He spluttered for a moment, trying to find the thread he had been following up, the point of the story, which had gotten lost in old thoughts, and remember. There it was. I was explaining how we two were alike, Jason, by which I mean we're both very serious about our love of baseball, and we both really hate losing. The difference is that you've got real talent. A lucky star, if you will. Maybe a whole dad blame lucky constellation. I'm wishing I could understand what the reason is behind your needing to be the best at everything. 
what it is you have to prove that you haven't already accomplished by getting that amazing batting average, the one that's currently, he searched his memory, 393 as of last week. The admission came not from the bow, but from DG's side, where his star pitcher was looking after his fishing line. Both the kid and the kid's manager sat in the rowboat with their mouths open. DG could only guess at why the offered information was so shocking to the boy. For his own sake, he had never known Bud Triplehorn to give a darn about any statistics besides his own. Yeah, that's what it was. There are thousands of guys in this country who would commit amazing acts of mayhem if they could get that kind of an average, but you... He warmed back up to his subject, letting the strange moment go overboard. You're willing to throw all that away because somebody called you a name? Because you got your shoelaces tied together? You don't make any sense to me, kid. Not anymore. The one thing D.G. really wanted to know was if all of the troubles had something to do with Raven. He was no dummy. But he had no right to ask that, especially not in front of Triplehorn. Would the boy ever open up? Was he willing to lose everything he had in Boston over his own silly pride? Was it that serious? Okay, he'd blown up a Triplehorn, but... Mr. Muldowney had even admitted, more or less, that it was deserved. What was all this? It sounded to Jason like his own manager didn't know whether he belonged on the Braves anymore or not, and it didn't sound like a simple apology was going to take care of things. Jason closed his eyes, turned his face away from the fisherman, though he continued listening to the line zinging out over the water, the plop of the landing, all but lost amidst the falling raindrops. Why did he have to lose his temper? Why did Bud have to pick on him, and why couldn't Mr. Muldowney see that it was all the pitcher's fault? How was he going to even survive, now that Raven had run away? That thought, at least. Well, that thought had to be put away for another time. It was baseball that mattered out on that pond, not women. With a conscious effort, Jason gathered up all of the thoughts in his mind that had anything to do with green eyes, with chestnut hair, and he locked them away in his second deepest vault right next to the one that held all of the thoughts that had anything to do with his father and mother. But after the cleanup had been finished, when Jason was free to consider what path he was going to walk, he still didn't know what to tell his manager. He couldn't lose the Braves. The applause. Not after everything else, he couldn't lose baseball. He couldn't go back home a complete failure. Panic gripped at Jason's insides, and he was afraid. and wanted to cry. Except that he still didn't know how to do that. But he had, hadn't he? No, he couldn't remember the time spent with her, couldn't let that come up anymore. He couldn't, he couldn't. D.G. was not a mind reader, but frankly the look on Jason's face had to be scaring the fish away. What was the boy going through? And for the love of Babe Ruth, why wouldn't he share it with anyone? Kid? The sound, the word, brought Jason's head up sharply. I just want to play ball, D. Mr. Muldowney. Considering what his friend had almost just called him, D.G. remembered his harsh words and was ashamed of himself. To add to the kid's troubles after everything, hadn't he wanted Jason to call him Deej and then rebuke him for doing it? Could the boy call him that now? It hadn't been right that day. Ah, oh, In the end, the older man just sighed and pretended he hadn't heard the slip. Kid, I want you to be behind home plate as much as you do, but I can't do what's best for one person, not even if I care about that person as much as I care about you. He hadn't meant to say that. Didn't seem like the sort of thing a man was supposed to say out loud, and he hoped neither Bud nor Jason saw his cheeks redden in the rain. Yet it was still true, which made the rest of what he had to say so much worse. 
My responsibility is for the entire team, and I just don't know, Jason, if you're a good thing for the Braves or not. I thought I was important. Now DG was suddenly exasperated. You are, blame you. That's one of the worst things about this. Doing what I believe is best for the team means taking their hopes away. Taking the brass ring we're all reaching for and yanking it skyward about a hundred feet. But if you keep this up, if you keep going out there for nobody but you, living behind a hated enemy in your own dugout, he looked at Bud, who wouldn't meet his eyes. Then the baseball team I happen to manage just might be destroyed by it. And I won't let the Braves fall apart, not even for a World Series title. Should he say it? It seemed petty, but if you want personal glory and attention, talk to Bob Germain. The response was immediate, and T.G. wondered how he knew it would be. I'm not like him. I didn't say you were, Jason. A nasty, heavy silence thundered across the rowboat, drowning out the soft rainfall. Heaving another sigh that did nothing to dissipate the surrounding gloom, Dennis G. Muldowney reeled in his fishing line and put the pole away. Francis Bud Triplehorn did the same. Neither man had caught a thing. The same plaintive request was much quieter this time, although D.G. caught every word. I just want to play ball, sir. Taking an oar each, the manager and star pitcher of the Boston Braves started pulling for shore. I'm sorry, Ked. And he really was. Chapter 11 Jason Stiller stood outside a Boston front door that looked very similar to the doors on either side, not to mention across the street, down the way, and all over the city, wondering at the unseen danger shadowing about within. He didn't know what he was in for, but one thing he did know, he couldn't stand out on the front porch for the rest of his life. Besides, D.G. was supposed to be here too, and maybe somehow at the end of the evening the kid would have a baseball career again. And that decided him. He was willing to face a lot to again face down major league pitchers. He raised a hand to knock on the door, but never got the chance, as it swung open. Francis Bud Triplehorn stood on the other side. The smell of roast beef slipped out to entice Jason further, and the kid was wearing loafers, so at least nobody was about to tie his shoelaces together. Come in, Jason. The door shut behind him, taking the aroma of roast beef with it. D.G. Muldowney didn't have much more of an idea of what was going on than his star hitter. It was Bud Triplehorn's stage, and they were all just bit players, himself especially. Buddy had noticed how different the first-string pitcher for the Braves had acted since that game, since the official rebuke. Dennis had known Bud for a long time, and the man had not been himself, not since... Hmm. It was too much for an old man to decipher. Hopefully somebody would clue him in or at least prop him in a corner and hang coats on his arms. Just as long as he was useful, D.G. mused. Bud and Jason walked into the living room, and D.G. stood up to greet his players. Thanks for having me, Bud. Evening, Jason. Hi, Mr. Muldowney. It was at the tip of his tongue almost without thought. Call me Deej, kid. But he couldn't really say that, not after what he had said before. If Jason noticed the miscue, he didn't say anything. Yeah, D.G. thought, just stand me up in a corner, make a lamp out of me or something. Be easier on everybody. When the dinner finally got underway, it was not too soon for any of those Boston Braves. Jason was surprised, for some reason, to discover that Bud Triplehorn had a family. A beautiful wife with kind, gentle eyes and three children, two lovely girls in their mid-teens, and a four-year-old 
missing his two front teeth scamp of a boy. The adults sat down in the dining room while the children sat arguing peacefully with one another in the breakfast nook. While D.G. chatted with Missy and Bud over a few familiar things, things Jason was left out of, the young man took the opportunity to listen in on Jane, Melanie, and Michael. The conversation between the three kept jumping back and forth on different topics, as Jane wanted to know what Melanie thought of some new guy she had met over the summer. Melanie kept trying to get Jane's opinion of what she should wear at the start of the fall term, Michael just tried to get anybody to pay attention to him. Jason listened, and learned something about children, and hoped deep inside that somehow, someday, he would have the joy of being a father. The hope surprised him. It was nothing he had ever experienced before. When he next caught Bud's eye, he commented, You have a wonderful family, Mr. Triplehorn. Missy, to his right, smiled gently and seemed glad to hear it. Bud, to his left, smiled less gently and rolled his eyes. First off, kid, call me Bud. Good luck, Francis, D.G. dug at his favorite pitcher. He won't call you anything but what he wants. We're trying to make friends tonight, Deej, and while it's certainly up to him, Bud grimaced at Jason, and the kid recognized how difficult all of this civility was for his baseball peer. I'm trying as hard as I can do to come up with a friendship. And secondly, thanks for the compliment on my family. And they're great kids. There seemed to be more to that, and Bud picked at his mashed potatoes for several seconds, and then looked like he had decided to say it. But darned if two of them aren't girls, though. My bouncing firstborn son, he don't have any truck with baseball, neither. Bud! Somehow Missy looked both freshly upset, and also like she had heard this sort of thing a thousand times before. Ah, so happy that you gave me the son I asked for, Missy. All you had to do was let a bit of baseball fire get into him. Was that too much to ask? Jason looked at D.G., and since his manager was pretty much ignoring the exchange, he tried to as well. Seemed like something should be said, though. But if the Triple Horns knew this script, if they had been through it before, it most likely wasn't a guest's place to say anything. Mrs. Triplehorn began clearing the table, giving her husband exasperated looks. The object of the argument wandered in from the other room. Mommy, can I be excused from my table? You're already up, aren't you? Well, I had to get up to ask you if I could get up. And the logic of the sentence seemed to get Michael confused. Come here, Michael. I'll excuse you. Bud reached for his son, and the four-year-old wasted no time running to his father and climbing in his lap. Now then, what does Daddy want you to be more than anything in the world? Baseball player. The confusion was gone. Get your fingers out of your mouth, Michael. You know I want you to play baseball. You know I want to give you my glove and my bat, and especially a nice new baseball. You know how much I'd like to go to a park and watch you send some batter right back to the dugout on three pitches? Hmm? Michael put his fingers back in his mouth, speaking around him. Want to go to the park, Daddy? Oh, not the park down the block. I mean a baseball stadium. Like where Daddy plays? Wouldn't you like to do that? Thinking about it, Michael made a concentrated study of the dining room ceiling. Then he looked seriously at Jason. I like rocks. Uh, really? Jason didn't really know what else to say. I do. Go play, Michael. No bugging your sisters. Bye, Daddy. The child slid down to the floor and ran off. His father watched him go and sighed. Kid has no interest in baseball whatsoever. We finally come up with a boy, and he wants to be a rock hound. That's life, huh? Once again, the one thing Jason really did want to put forth was not something a guest really had the right to say. He looked at his manager, but DG didn't look like anything was wrong. Maybe it was just him. Maybe he was making a lot out of a little. 
Maybe Bud Triplehorn was a wonderful father, and the kid just didn't know enough to see it. Either way, he put it aside. So what was it we're trying to do tonight? I'm glad to meet your family, and I sure enjoyed your wife's cooking, but that wasn't it, right? Don't look at me, kid, D.G. admitted. I don't know anything. He sure hoped that there was more to the evening than just the meal. Frankly, the next series of baseball games were not ones he wanted to lose, and without the kid... Besides which, the older man missed his friend very much. They were living in the same house, still, but couldn't seem to get past the fence that had gone up between them. D.G. thought of his wife, who was probably praying for them all just then, and rather than laughing at the idea, or shaking his head at his wife's foolishness, Dennis G. dredged up several very old and dusty prayers, entreaties that had not seen the light of day in many years. And even as he did so, he hoped God could forgive an old codger for just wanting things to work out for once. Bud looked like he'd been thinking for a long time about what he would be saying that night. He screwed up his face in concentration, trying to get the words out right, and it would have been laughable. Except that it wasn't. Perhaps the seriousness of the man. Perhaps just what he was trying to say. Francis Triplehorn was bearing his soul, and it was not a thing to take lightly. Hello, Jason. I've been thinking a lot since you tackled me last week. And when I asked you over here tonight, I was thinking mostly of the team, but also of you some, too. I hope that somehow we can just put all the stuff behind us and talk as men for a while. Just like we didn't have any grudges or evil stuff between us. Just a couple of baseball players on the same field for once. Jason was touched by the earnest determination in Bud Triplehorn's eyes. The man was speaking from his heart, and it was painfully obvious that such revelations did not come easily. The mere courage that it took for the man to open up changed Jason's heart toward him, made him see the picture in a different light. I like that too, bud. Now, first off, then, the pitcher began as he settled more comfortably into his chair. I want to apologize to you. I had my reasons for the way I've acted in the past few months, and I'll get into those too. But in the end, I didn't act like much of a man, more like a spoiled kid. It wasn't right, and I'm sorry. Jason wasted no time in his answer. I accept, he said quietly. Bud accepted the acceptance with a nod and then shifted to an utterly different track, which he unknowingly had a habit of doing at times. You know, my father worked in the Coalwood Springs mine, down in South Carolina, most of his life. He loved it, too, which never made a lick of sense to me. Warm to death, that place did, but somehow it was the best thing of his life to wear the hard hat, turn that little light on, and go down into the darkness. Bud laughed, suddenly. <laughs> that light on the helmet didn't do next to nothing against the dark. He took me down one time, and all you could see was little fireflies bobbing around and a bit of somebody's faith underneath, with tons of rock above. Scared me silly. I couldn't sleep for a week. Bud realized that he had gotten lost in a memory and coughed to give himself time to come back to his point. Anyways, he thought that I should be working in the mine too. He thought that it was good enough for him, and so I ought to do it also. Well, I didn't think so. When the boys and I got together to throw a little pickle... I was easily the best at hurling that ball down the alley, and folks said I was pretty good. Not just my friends, mind you, but folks that maybe knew what they were talking about. Bud's fingers traced the edge of the tablecloth while his mind worked back a long ways. Daddy didn't take to it, and I didn't take to his thinking he could run my life. So before I was 17, I left home, started hitching west. And I didn't get that far. You got to Boston. D.G. was grinning, knowing the story well. I got that far, and darned if it wasn't far enough. 
I'd worked out all the way there, mile after mile, how I was going to go up and impress the first baseball manager I could find, get a spot on a ball team, and finally do what I always wanted. And wouldn't you know it, I showed up for spring training one year, a whole lot of years ago it seems, and did my best fast talking to Mr. Muldowney here. The story was close enough to Jason's that he wondered, in all seriousness, he didn't make you throw five strikes out of seven, did he? Both DG and Bud laughed for nearly a minute. Now, I saved my really nasty request for snot-nosed kids like you, Stiller, and Bud wasn't a punk kid who thought he could rule the world. He was ready to beg, borrow, or steal for a chance to be anything on the Braves. I liked that from the start. That's not the way I remember it. Bud and DG faced off in a friendly way. I seem to recall you telling me that you had all the worthless men you needed on your ball club, and I should get my tail back home. I would never say a thing like that. I remember it well, Deej, because you told me the same thing 17 days in a row. What? Jason wanted in on this. You came back every day? Bud turned back to his guest. Every day, Jason, because I was too dumb to know that I didn't have a chance at being a part of things on the Boston Braves. There was just no possibility in the world, but nobody told me that. I was too much of an idiot to figure it out for myself, and so I basically bugged Mr. Muldowney here until he couldn't stand it any longer. And I gave you a job cleaning up after the games just to shut you up. The two laughed again, while Jason sat there with his mouth open. Bud saw the look. <laughs> Seems a long way from being some fancy pitcher, don't it? You could say that. More perseverance. I knew that if I just worked on deeds for enough days in a row, he'd eventually fold. The pitcher leaned back in his chair, thinking about it. Though it took a year and a half to finally get a pitching tryout, but I've been practicing. My friends on the team had been helping me out secretly, and by the time Deej was willing to watch me throw, I was ready to show him something. True enough. Deej realized that he hadn't thought about those days in a long time. Somehow they seemed golden, even though the smart side of his mind remembered that they hadn't been, either. You turned up just when I needed you most, and I didn't even realize it. We do have a lot in common. Bud looked away from his manager, and DG saw his smile fade back into the serious look he had started out with. You turned up just when I needed you most, and I didn't even realize it. We do have a lot in common. Bud looked away from his manager, and DG saw the smile fade back into the serious look he had started out with. We do, Jason. I think we really do. I understand why it is that you have to be the best at everything. Was that what this was about? Jason just wanted to be back on the team. He just wanted to play ball again. Couldn't they just shake hands and be done with it? Apparently not. You've proven yourself worthy of being a brave kid. That first set of pitches DG made me throw at you, that was the best hitting I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen a lot of baseball. Jason wondered what it had cost the man to say that. More than the kid could know, and the conversation was getting more difficult with every minute. I don't know why I was so mean to you when we first met, Jason. I really don't. I remember the circumstances, as did Jason, apparently, by the way the kid colored and looked away. I guess I was just having a bad day. Maybe I was showing off for my buddies. You have to admit, it's not a usual thing for a fan to wander into the clubhouse. You caught me at a bad time. I didn't act like a gentleman, and I apologize for that, okay? As for the way I treated you that afternoon and the following months, that has a whole different side to it. Bud leaned back in his chair again, looked out the window at the hills, watching as they began to wrap up in twilight for the evening's sleep. Then abruptly he turned back around and said what was on his mind before he could stop himself. From the first day you stepped up to the plate, you've scared me to death, kid. 
Jason was not expecting it, and had no reference to understand it. What? Now that he was committed, Bud was apparently going to see it through. He looked straight at Jason, and his gaze was almost uncomfortable. Baseball's the only thing I know, Jason. It's my entire livelihood, and my entire life. The host waved a hand around the table. Baseball paid for this table and this house, and for the food we just ate, and the clothes on my son's back. The sport's been good to me. I've been as lucky as anybody I know. And then you came along and you threatened my entire way of life. Jason still didn't understand. Just a hitter. I'm not a pitcher. What threat was I to you? D.G. could not believe how open his old friend was being, and while he knew exactly what was being said, he couldn't imagine Bud actually letting the truth out. Even the two of them had never discussed it. It wasn't something one could discuss. But it looked like Bud was going to give it his best try. Only those of the Braves who've been around for a while, like Deej or Dutch Catan, only they realize what's happening. And if I'm lucky, I've still got some time left before the owner, say, or even worse, the fans, catch on. Catch on to what? Bud tried as hard as he could, but he could not make his statement while looking the kid in the eye. Staring at the tablecloth, the man let loose. Catch on to the fact that I ain't no great pitcher anymore, Jason. The first thing Jason thought of was the faded baseball card with Bud Triplehorn's picture on it that still sat in a worn pile with many others, buried in his sock drawer. And the kid found his emotions split down the middle. Part of him, the part that was still Bud Triplehorn's truest fan, wanted to immediately argue this. But Deej and Catan weren't the only ones that had noticed Bud's fight with age. It was something a pitcher's truest fan couldn't help but notice. You still do okay, Bud. Somehow Bud read his mind and grunted. You've seen it, too. I can do okay, sure. But all three of us know that despite DG's bluster, despite all of the foo-for-on applause, I'm not about to go out and throw us into a pennant victory, much less a winning World Series. In the past decade... When I haven't been afraid of being shot in the middle of some war I didn't start, I've been back home, terrified that some young hotshot pitcher would come along and blow me out of the water. Bud's smile was a wry one. You don't even pitch, Stiller. You don't play defense at all. And yet you're still my worst fear come true. I don't know how to do anything else, and I can't pitch forever anyway. And that glory you've been getting, the autographs, the cheers, the newspapermen, that's my glory you've walked off with. The man didn't look upset more resigned. Anyway, that's why I've been treating you like dirt, and it was wrong. I see that now. I'm just a washed-up ball player, and I won't stand in the way of current heroes. The team deserves better. And so do you, Stiller. And with that, Bud seemed to be finished. Jason wanted to say something. Frankly, he wanted to grab Bud by the shoulders and shake him, tell him to look around, see his wonderful children, his beautiful and gracious wife, see the great things he had that he was missing, taking for granted, while he moaned and cried over lost glory. But he didn't know how to say it. He didn't know the man well enough to get his words across. And besides, it was time for his own open-heart surgery. Jason could feel Mr. Muldowney's eyes on him. And the kid knew that if he wanted to be the kid anymore, he'd better get his troubles straightened out so that the manager of the Braves could trust him again. The soft brown eyes closed against the world. This was not going to be easy. D.G. saw the resignation on his friend's face and knew that finally an answer or two would come. He only hoped that once it had, that they could all go back to playing baseball, go back to normal, and put this entire mess behind them. 
As he resigned himself to the task, Jason's face was not altogether different from Bud's, though he did not realize it. No beating around the bush. Now that the dirty laundry was to be aired, might as well get down to it. My mother died when I was eleven years old, just over ten years ago. Smallpox came to Gillet Grove. Maybe I've told you. I forget. She was always going around helping people, always wanting to tend to another sick person. And then she was sick, and there wasn't a blessed thing we could do about it. She died, and I never got to say goodbye. For a moment, that revelation stung his mind enough, and he stopped. Nobody tried to put any encouraging words into the silence. The men just let him be for a moment. And for that, Jason was grateful. The thing of it was my father. I would have sworn that he cared about her. Sure seemed to. But after the funeral, after it was all over, he mourned her for a week, maybe two, and then life went back to normal for him. Jason hadn't opened his mouth about that awful summer in a long time, and he wondered how to shape the words correctly. How to get it all out. Like it was a good thing that it happened. My father kept talking about God's will, that he had taken his beloved servant home, and after a month he wouldn't have even known that anything was wrong. He was tending the store, greeting the customers, and the world was a wonderful place again. Jason looked vacantly out the same window that Bud had peered through not long before, though the skies were now dark and little could be seen. While his eyes were taken up by the black outside, his mind allowed the blackness of his own heart to rise to the surface. In the quietest whisper, Jason let the words come. I never forgave him for that. Again, silence took hold, and the big room echoed with the weight of heavy memories. The kid sighed and continued. So our relationship strained a bit after that. Maybe I mourned her too long. Maybe I had too difficult a time letting go, but he seemed so callous, so cruel about it. Like I said, I thought he loved her. Well, now I knew he hadn't either. Mom deserves so much better than my father. And then Jason shook his head, suddenly as if pushing ancient demons away. So I started drifting away from schoolwork, away from the friends I had previously known, and one summer later on, <laughs> much better summer than when I was 11, I discovered that I had something of a talent for baseball. DG had been watching, and the mention of that holiest of sports had cleared the kid's countenance more than a little. He was glad for it, having never seen such an expression on his friend's face. How awful a man had his father been! Dennis remembered how little Jason had liked the patriarch of the Germain family, even from the start, and thought it did not seem so very strange. Not now. Jason went on. I was good at it right from the start, which didn't hurt any. If I could play ball, could just imagine how things were someday going to be. And even though it was just a borrowed bat and a ball with electrical tape wrapped around it to keep the seams from splitting, when I would hit one out past the drugstore... A familiar faraway look was in the boy's eyes, and D.G. knew exactly how he felt. It didn't matter that my mother was gone and my father didn't love me. I didn't care if nobody loved me. I could just dream for as long as the ball was in the air, dream that I was in the big leagues, that people were cheering me on, that life was somehow perfect. Jason caught both men's eyes in turn and saw that they understood. But he said it anyway. I tell you, every time that the ball disappears and I look down that white line to first base, knowing I can take all the time in the world to make my way back to home plate, everything is right with the world. Suddenly the kid laughed, struck by the memory. <laughs> For the first time I did that, hit a home run, I mean, boy, it was long ago. 
But I still remember it was my first game. Almost my first at bat. And I was so excited knowing that I get to just trot around the bases and wave at everybody, pretend I was a big star. <laughs> I got a little crazy and started doing cartwheels uh, right down the first baseline. You're kidding. Jason found a smile to give his manager. Not a bit. I did about a dozen cartwheels right down the line and then got dizzy. I had to just sit on first base for about three minutes until I got my bearings back. His smile turned into a chuckle, which both of the older men were happy to share. But the game waited on me, though. They all had to wait. I had hit a home run, and if I wanted to take 15 minutes to amble around the bases, I'd just do that. For a very short moment, Jason Stiller was 14 again, sitting on first base, dizzy and half-sick and utterly ecstatic about being alive. The moment passed. Of course, Dad didn't like baseball. He wanted me to help him run the store after school. He wanted, in the end, to hand the store over to me and didn't care a whit for baseball. The smile had quickly disappeared, replaced by something ragged and stony. We stopped talking to one another more than we had to. I guess I came close to pulling a triple horn just up and running away more than a few times. But you never did? Bud wondered aloud. No, I never did. Scared to, maybe. Or too smart? Across the table, his manager gave a short laugh. I think it was brains that kept me home, because I knew that the chances of just showing up at a big league or even a minor league doorstep and getting a job were near impossible. Well, some of us managed it, kid. I ain't as lucky as you, Triplehorn. The hero from the baseball card chewed on that one for a moment. I don't know about that, kid. I've seen you behind the plate. Jason acknowledged this with a nod. Something my dad never managed. Never came to a game. Not one which hurt, would always and forever be a wound to him. The man hadn't even bothered to care. Jason would rather have been hated than nothing at all to his father. Not even when I got into a local garage league with my amazing talents. Not even when, after firing off letters to every major and minor ball club in this country, when I got one back from the National League certified since 1903 Boston Braves, a letter that said, come on down, we'll give you a tryout, and even paid for my train ticket, did he bother saying that I had done anything good? Never acknowledged that he was proud of me. Drove me to the station, told me good luck, waved me off. Like we were strangers. I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. Jason tried to remember where the story had been going from the start. Oh, yes. So I say all that to say this. I'm sorry that I've been a jerk. Sorry that I've been running around trying to prove myself to everybody and be the best at everything. I'm sorry I drove a wedge into the Braves. I didn't mean to. The kid looked at his hands, not able to face the men watching him anymore. Uh, I just want people to accept me. If I can be the best at everything, then maybe I'll be worth something. That's all. DG thumped a couple of knuckles on the wooden table talk until Jason looked up at him. We both understand, kid. I'm no head shrinker. I can't tell you what you should think about your father or anything. All I know is baseball. And from what we've been witness to this evening, I think that you and Mr. Mr. Triple Warren will treat each other as teammates from now on. There were nods from both players. And you both will be a part of the team, doing your best for the Braves and not going out for nothing more than personal glory. The looks he got then were much more sheepish, but in the end another set of nods were handed over. Okay. So let's get out and play some ball tomorrow, huh? 
A look of relief passed over Jason's face that almost hurt Dennis to see. He hadn't meant to cause the kid so much trouble. And in the end, had he done the right thing? G reflected, not for the first time, how much easier life would have been if he'd become a cook or a baker or a walking stick maker instead of what he was, the den mother for a bunch of guys in uniform, all trying to work together and separately at the same time. Well, it was too late to change anything now. He was stuck. But the man grinned when his friend shook his hand and said thanks. It's good to have you back, Jason. I'm sorry if I lost my temper last week. I'm sure I had it coming, Mr. Muldowney. Not this again. For crying out loud, kid, like I said, I'm sorry for yelling at you. Call me Deej already. You've certainly made it acceptable. And then a strange thing happened, or perhaps not so strange. A shadow passed quick as a thought across Jason's face, and he half smiled and said nothing more. Yet somehow the manager of the Braves knew that it was to be Mr. Muldowney for the time being until... Well, until the kid himself believed that he had earned the right to call his superior by the more familiar name. Until Jason Stiller felt like he belonged. D.G. said nothing about it and tried to push it all from his mind. The team was whole again. His star pitcher was mollified. His star hitter was ready to belt a few dozen more and send the whole team up to the series in October. Everything was going to be fine. Well, look at that. Jason Stiller is back on the Braves. Everything's better. I don't think any conflict's going to happen from this point on. We should probably just call it the end, right? No, there's still another six or seven chapters left to go. There's still trouble looming in a Bruin, but we will get to that in a future podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. My son has uh, gotten some dirt off the barbecue grill and rubbed it on his face. He looks a little like Clark Gable right now. I'm going to go clean off my kid. But in the meantime, please own your stage, whatever stage that happens to be. And uh, we'll see you back here in a couple of weeks. Happy summer, everybody.